You turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be in Hebrews 10, 32 through 39 this morning, the end of chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I want to read an update from uh, Mark and Parker Phillips, a missionary family that our church is connected to and uh, committed to in Niger, Africa now for a number of years. Uh, This is from, they send out updates pretty much weekly, and if uh, you don't get those, uh, I guess... uh, you can try to figure out a way to get you connected to those. They're, they're always encouraging. And uh, this last week, they asked for prayer for two different uh, uh, people. So one is Adresa. Adresa is a believer that they've been, a longtime believer for a number of years who's connected to them and their, uh, their church, who's recently been uh, getting more pressure from his family to uh, recant his faith. And then the next one is uh, some Fulani brothers. So the Fulani people are one of the major people groups in Niger, and uh, they're, they've been um, uh, committed to Islam for centuries, and uh, maybe you've even seen, they're, they're throughout West Africa, you may be seeing the news the last week, there's some Fulani uh, people in Nigeria, just south of Niger, that have been uh, attacking uh, some some towns and some uh, uh, Christian churches uh, in, in Nigeria. But uh, there's some Fulani believers who have come, and they were just recently at a training that um, the Access Ministries and that uh, Mark, Mark put on. So those are the two groups they're asking for prayer for here. So here's what they write in their update this last week. They said, Thank you so much for praying for our dear brother Idrissa. He is in much better spirits But we know that the mental toil and stress of his persecution is never easy to bear. When recounting his story to a friend who served in Senegal, she said that she saw so many believers turn away from their faith after years of following Christ because of this type of persecution. The constant beratement, accusations, and guilt-tripping can mentally wear someone down to the point of abandoning their faith. Please pray for the Lord to grant Adresa not only mental fortitude to withstand the persecution from his family, but also the joy, peace, and hope that only come through faith in Christ as he preserves, or as he perseveres through his tr- this trial. And then they write, the training this weekend was a huge encouragement to our Fulani brothers, but also a stark reminder of the reality they face. More than one of them spoke of being physically assaulted and threatened by jihadists in their region. They talked of how many are apprehended by the younger jihadists and are held captive until word is given by those in command to kill them or beat them for their faith. They've also been threatened to not gather in groups to study God's word. These men love the Lord, love his word, and want to grow in their faith and share the gospel with others in hopes of planting healthy churches even in the midst, or even amidst their circumstances. Pray for them as they take what they've learned this weekend and begin to implement it. Pray that they would be faithfully wise as they do what God has called them to do in their contexts and their current circumstances. 
And so they're asking that uh, we would pray for these brothers and sisters, that they would, that they would endure in their faith. And, and that's precisely the topic of what we're looking at this morning in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Father, we do pray for uh, the friend of Mark and Parker, Adresa, who is our brother in Christ. We pray for those, these Fulani brothers who have received training and are now heading back to where things are hostile. Father, we ask that you would strengthen and preserve them in the same way that we ask that you would strengthen and preserve us as well. Through your word, through reminding us of what Christ has done, what you've done for us in Christ, and through the Holy Spirit who has sealed us and preserves us and directs us back to your word and to Christ again and again. We look to him now, in Jesus' name, amen. Halfway through chapter 10, the author of Hebrews switches, switches his emphasis from doctrine to uh, instruction, from uh, indicatives indicating what is true to imperatives pressing the truth into what those truths demand as a as a response, we see that Christianity is not simply a one-time experience. Christianity isn't uh, uh, something that you can, can just kind of section off into one, one part of your life. Uh, an encounter with the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that's not something you check off your bucket list and move on to the, to the next thing. It's an ongoing reality. It's an all-encompassing worldview. It, in, it includes personal, lasting transformation. And we're reminded in this passage that for believers, it's only getting started. And, and once it starts, it continues. And it includes, at least in this stage of our lives, between conversion and physical death, it includes Endurance, and the, and the author here is encouraging these believers to endure, to persevere 
in faith. And so, to do so, to encourage them, he reminds them of three things. Oriented to the past, he reminds them of God's previous work. Oriented to the future, he reminds them of God's promises yet to come. And then oriented back to the present moment, he reminds them of God's preserving power. And so first, let's look at how the author directs their attention to the past. In verse 32, uh, in the ESV, it begins, but recall. Other translations, it says, remember. It's actually in the passive, passive voice, it says, be reminded. Be reminded. I get, uh, or I've gotten a little bit of a hard time for telling people to be encouraged uh, before, but it's biblical. He's telling you, be reminded. He's saying, permit your memories your memories to inform your current thinking. And he draws their attention to their earlier days as, as believers. Uh, he reminds them in, in verse 32 there that they, they once endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And the word struggle here, uh, it could also be translated challenge. It's, it's the word sin. You can hear the word athlete in sin. And so they were this idea, they were pushed harder than they probably thought they could be pushed during this, during this suffering. And it says this was after they had been enlightened. Enlightened probably just means uh, the, the work, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, opening their eyes to see the glory of Christ. It could also refer to their baptism. Uh, it's hard to know conclusively, but either way, this is something that took place after they became Christians, after they became believers, probably soon after they became believers. And what they experienced was a hard, a hard, a hard struggle. And what that looked like was, was they were exposed to public reproach and affliction. Uh, they were subjected to uh, insults and disgrace. And that's, that's even harder. I mean, that's, that's hard for anyone. And it's even harder in a culture that... Uh, is much more deeply rooted in shame and honor than a culture like ours. And it says, when they weren't, or when they didn't experience this personally, their close associates did, in verse 33. They were partners with those so treated. So in a shame-honor culture, they were willing to bear the shame of, of others and associate with those who were being treated like this. Christianity is a public religion. It's public. As I said before, it's comprehensive. So it's not just an experience. It's not something you can isolate to one, one part of your life. Uh, the claim that Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King uh, is not something that just fits nicely into one part of your week or uh, into one experience among a host of others. It doesn't really work to say, uh, one of the ways I personally express myself is religiously. And, and I do that through claiming that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. You know, but that's just me. Uh, that, that, doesn't really, that doesn't really work. If Jesus is Lord, there is no higher authority. If Jesus is Savior, then, then there's no other salvation. And that can't just be true for a few hours of your week. And it can't just be true uh, at one time back at an event in the 90s or something like that. Christianity is, is pervasive. It, it spills into all parts of our lives. Jesus as Lord 
and Savior is relevant as you take every breath of every day. And inevitably, then, your Christianity, it bleeds out into other areas of your life. Christianity becomes public, and that's before you even begin to embrace the commission given by Jesus to take this good news of Christ to all the nations. So all authentic forms of Christianity are public. But not everyone in public appreciates Christianity. Christianity threatens every other authority. And Christianity threatens every other Savior. And people fight hard for their authorities and for their saviors. And so Jesus warns every one of his followers, John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the author of Hebrews is reminding these believers, you've already endured a hard suffering. Or or what's implied there is, remember, God has already sustained you through some hard struggles. We don't always want to remember bad memories. They're bad. Right? But we do well to remember God's faithfulness to us in the hard things that we have suffered. The trials we endure, they they could be persecution, they can just be normal suffering in a fallen world, and we can tend to not want to think about those, but what's healthy is to remember how God sustained us through hard trials, particularly when they were for, for when they were for the sake of Christ. And one of the marks of these believers is that they endured through that already. A second mark of these Christians is, is their sympathy. In verse 34, it says, For you had compassion on those in prison. The word compassion here is the same word translated sympathy in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so as these believers showed this compassion, uh, as they sympathized with their brothers and sisters in prison, they they demonstrated a likeness to, to Christ. There was an online debate a number of years ago of, of, of sympathy versus empathy. Uh, it, it does seem like our culture's uh, demand for empathy and, and uh, 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 spotlighting empathy is, is sort of the, one of the critical things that we all have to have that's gotten out of hand lately. It's been elevated too high. Uh, to say you can't tell me anything until you feel what I feel does seem to cut you off from from anyone who uh, could maybe speak into your, your life. Uh, but while empathy has maybe been blown out of proportion in our own culture, Christian sympathy is something to cultivate. Jesus exhibited sympathy, and, and, and we are confronted, or, or I guess as we're conformed to the image of, of, of Christ, we find ourselves growing in sympathy as well, and that's what marked these believers, even earlier, even early in their faith. They exhibited sympathy and compassion to their brothers and sisters in, in prison. And, and then third, perhaps related to those visits to prison, these Christians exhibited their love for Christ because of what they were willing to accept. Verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What's remarkable is not what they accepted, but, but how they accepted it. Uh, per, personal property matters. 
I mean, we tell ourselves and we tell each other, you know, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. And yet if I told you that there's someone in your house right now or your apartment right now going through all of your belongings, how would you feel? You'd feel violated. You'd probably get up and go do something about it right away. It's just stuff. Yeah, I mean, it is just stuff, but we're creatures. God's made us to be creatures. We live in a material world. We're part of the material world. We're more than just material, but we are material, and we can love our stuff way too much. But stuff matters, and these believers had their stuff robbed, plundered, seized, and they accepted it, it says, with, with joy. And that, that's remarkable. It's one thing just to accept something. I can accept it. I just have to accept it. But they accepted it with, with joy. I mean, what evidence of, of God's grace in their lives? That's not natural. And I'm sure there was pain connected with it. I mean, this was a violation. This was at the very least an inconvenience. And at maybe the worst, it was a great hardship to them, depending on what was, what was taken. It's hard to not think of Peter and John in, in Acts 5.41, right after they were flogged by the Jewish Sanhedrin. It says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Christ. And how could they respond in this way. Well, it says in the case of these, these Hebrew believers, verse 34, since, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They experienced joy because what was, or because what was taken from them was not what was most valuable to them. They were able to have joy because what was taken was not the most valuable thing that they had. They knew they had a better possession and a lasting possession than anything that they could have taken from their, their homes. This better possession, this, the idea of better is a, is, a, is a theme throughout Hebrews. In chapter 7, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He uh, or the new covenant also introduces a better hope. Chapter 8, the new covenant is enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9, the new covenant is founded on better sacrifices. And these Christians knew they had a better possession. They had something better coming. It's also a lasting, it's described as a lasting possession, something that lasts and doesn't fail. The author will point out in a couple chapters in Hebrews 13, verse 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come, something that lasts, that never fades away. There's a lot of nice tents you can buy today. They have some cool features. They make them with like pet doors and stuff now. You can have a really nice tent. You can be really excited about your tent and enjoy your tent. But if you take away my tent, it doesn't devastate me if I'm sure I have a house to go home to. The whole point here is that these Christians believed. They, they embraced what they had in Christ so much that they could receive with joy the seizure 
of things that ultimately they knew were not lasting and were not better than what they already had. So what evidence of grace, what evidence that something had changed these people into people who were not normal? How much do you look back in your Christian life? And when you look back, what do you look back to? What do you look back and dwell on? I mean, there's kind of two different ways you can look back. You can look back with a focus on yourself, thinking through, you know, what did I do? What have I done? Or what was I thinking? What was I feeling? A lot of times asking those types of questions are not very encouraging when we're honest with ourselves or when we're real with ourselves. But another way to look back on your life is to focus on God and to make Him the, the subject of the questions, right? What has God done in my heart? What has God done? Few of us have been, have been exposed to public ridicule and, and insults. Maybe you have. Few of us have had to go to prison for our faith at this point or had even had to go visit people in prison who are put there because of Christ. But we have all endured hardship. And if you struggle with assurance, something to think through and ask yourself as you look back, and make sure you ask, you don't focus on your own response. A lot of times that will only bring, that will only bring discouragement. But to ask, where can I see evidence of God's sustaining grace in my life? Would I have really responded in all the ways I have apart from God's work? God's work in the past is one of the things that can help us endure in the present, where he's proven himself faithful. If he's proven himself faithful before, he can prove himself faithful again. And maybe you need to recall the former days when you first believed, or earlier in your Christian, Christian life. Second, the author also directs us to the future. We should not just be past-oriented Christians. We're also future-oriented Christians. And he points them to the future in a great reward to come in verse 35. He, he uh, points them towards God's promises to come in verse 36, and then the return of Christ in verse 37. Verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. This is probably the strongest imperative in these verses. Don't throw it away. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. In other words, if he's saying don't throw it away, he's saying hold on to it. Hold on to your confidence. Well, what is their confidence? Where does this confidence come from? Would you just look up in verse 19 again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Or going back to chapter 4, verse 16, he says, let us, with, or let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He's saying basically the same thing, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence, or, or in, uh, back in chapter 6, or sorry, back, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, but Christ is faithful over all, or Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting. 
in our, in our hopes. So confidence is something we hang on to. It's something that you cling to. He's saying, don't throw this away. And in Christ, what we have, the confidence that we have is confident access to God. The God that we don't have access to in our sin and rebellion and uncleanness. This is confidence that you don't want to lose. The most valuable person you can have access to is the God who made you. And you don't have access to Him apart from Christ, apart from His grace. But in Christ, we have confidence. And He's saying, don't throw that away. Why should they hold on to it? They should hold on to it because it comes with reward, he says. Your confidence has a great reward. God rewards in two different ways. Scripture describes two different reward reward systems that God sets up with people. The first way goes like this. There are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. That's the first kind of reward system. Think back to uh, the, the system God sets up at, at Sinai. It's very, very clear there. Two whole chapters uh, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Really simple. We can understand that, right? That's what we do when we go to work every day. If you go and do your job, get the reward of uh, monetary payment for your time and effort and, and work done, Right? All right, that's, that's the first system. But the other system, thankfully, that God sets up is a system that goes something along the lines of God says, I will do this and I will reward you. I will do this and I will reward you. So in love, I will send my son because that first reward system, that's actually ter- that's terrible news to us. None of us actually find any any true reward in that system. We all end up we all end up bankrupt in the system of blessings for obedience curses for disobedience. The whole almost over half the Bible is a record of people finding the curses for for disobedience and never finding the reward. But in the other system where God says I will do this and I will reward you, I will in love send my son. He will be obedient in your place. He will earn rewards in your place. He will take your curses in your place. And then after a complete payment for all of your penalties and after a complete earning of all rewards, he will share the spoils of his reward of, with all of those who come to him and place their faith in him. And so we have access to all these rewards by virtue of the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And the way you get them It's through faith. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to fulfill anything. You put your faith in Christ and He shares His rewards with you. You receive. I mean, the way that looks, that looks like forsaking all of the hopes of of, of earning the rewards yourselves. You have to do that. You, You can't try to mix in your own. Christ's work is perfectly and fully sufficient on its own. So putting your faith in Him, it looks like forsaking your own earning of rewards. It also means turning away from all other sources of those who would promise you reward, or ultimate reward, anyway, and putting your faith in Christ 
alone, but in that, that is the way, that is the only way to find confidence to enter the heavenly places, to find confident access to the God who made you. So don't throw away your confidence. It has great reward. Greater reward than whatever fleeting pleasures might be offered by someone else or something else. Don't throw it away. And it's especially tempting to throw it away when the pressure is on. It's especially tempting when public ridicule is becoming more and more real and heavier. He basically says the same thing, but inversely in verse verse 36. After verse 35, he writes, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, he's not changing the rules here. He's He's not switching it up. All right, this isn't reverting back to the first reward system of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. It's not saying, listen, if you'll do the will of God, you'll receive what is promised. So do your best to do the will of God. No, we've all failed in that system. He's not changing the rules here. It's still the second reward system. God says, I will do this and I will reward you. We know this. Uh, This has been consistent throughout Hebrews. He cites the new covenant uh, in in chapter 8 when he's uh, uh, quoting Jeremiah 31. But Hebrews 8.10, he, he writes, quoting Jeremiah, for this is the covenant I will make with them or with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is what God is doing in the new covenant. He is still determined to change us. He is still determined to have a different end product than rebellious, selfish, indulgent people at at the end of this thing. But the difference is he is going to accomplish it. He's he's determined to change us from the self-oriented, self-ruling, autonomous people that we are by our sinful nature. And he does it as as His grace sustains us, and, and, and what that looks like is we are persevering in our faith. We are enduring trials because we are His, His people. We are doing so because we know we have a lasting city, a greater and lasting possession. We do so because His law is written on our hearts. And as a result, He rewards us and promises with all the promises of of the new covenant, which are centered in, I will be their God, they shall be my people. What we sang in that third song is that God is our reward. And the logic's the same back in Hebrews 6, verse 4, where he writes, he's he's saying the same thing back in chapter 6, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is what the author of Hebrews wants for us. And and this is why he wants them to endure. He wants them And by proximity, he wants us to inherit God's future 
promises. So he points them to future rewards, future promises, and third, to a future coming. The future of one to come. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. The beginning of that quotation is probably from Isaiah 26, where God tells the people of Judah to wait patiently because he is going to come and vindicate them. He's going to come and vindicate his people and judge their enemies, which kind of makes sense with the context of what these Hebrew Christians were in here in uh, chapter 10. So he quotes Isaiah, probably 26, to say God is coming in a little while. Wait and, and be patient. And in a greater sense, we wait today. We wait not merely for God to judge our earthly enemies, although in the case of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, like the Fulani brothers, there are earthly enemies that uh, one can look forward to being judged if they will not bow the knee to Christ. But we're not only waiting for God to judge earthly enemies, we're also waiting to, for God to judge our, our heavenly enemies. Both the kings of earth who set themselves up against the Lord and His anointed, but also the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness who wish you harm. Why should we endure? We should endure because the coming one will come. There is one to come, and he will not delay. He will arrive precisely on time. And let's be honest, that probably means more this morning as we're meeting to Idrissa in Niamey and the Fulani brothers in Niger than it does for most of us right now. But our hope needs to be rooted in the future just as much as their hope needs to be rooted in the future. How do you think about the future? Do you think about it in terms of rewards coming or retribution coming? Are there promises coming, things promised coming, or are there penalties coming? In all three areas, the author points the Christian in the direction of, of the end of all things, what's coming in, in the end. God's rewards are future-oriented. His promises are future-oriented. The coming of Christ, the return of Christ, is future-oriented. And so if your hope is anchored in the present, only in the present, if your hope is anchored only in what this world can offer and in your present circumstances, you will not endure. You won't, you won't endure. And so as we look rightly to the past, and then as we look rightly to the future in the way that the author is directing us here, it gives us perspective for the present. It gives us perspective for this moment or whatever moment you find yourself in. So third, we must remember God's preserving power. Verses 38 and 39, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we have two different kinds of people described here, right? You have those who shrink back and you have those who endure in faith. Those who shrink back, those who endure. Those who shrink back are those who fall away, right? It's those who, who fail 
to persevere. It's those who repudiate Christ. Think again of the parable of the soils. The, the seed sown among the rocks, it seems to grow, but it ultimately shrinks back. The seed sown among the thorns, it seems to grow, but it ultimately shrinks back. It never produces fruit. But those who have faith endure. Most of the passage here that's, that's quoted comes from Habakkuk 2.4, which we read together earlier. And this is the same passage that Paul quotes in both Romans and Galatians when he's trying to get at the heart of, of the gospel, right? So in Galatians 3.11, Paul writes, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's, what's, that's what the author of Hebrews is quoting here from Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. So there's two different kinds of people in the world. There's the faithful and there's the shrink-backers, or the shrinkers, I wasn't sure what to call them. The faithers and the shrinkers. And it says, God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. And at first glance, that might look like a threat. Is that threatening you? Is the author of Hebrews, is he threatening you there? You better not shrink back. You better not mess up. That's, that's not how he's actually using the path. That's not how he's quoting it. That's not, that's not the point he's pressing. It's true, if we shrink back, we will not inherit the promises. That's, that's true, but that's not how the author is, is quoting Habakkuk here. It's true that God takes no pleasure in those who fall away, who shrink back, who trample the Son of God underfoot. But what he says in verse 30, he says, but we are not those who shrink back. That's not who we are. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. If your hope is in Christ, your end isn't destruction. Your end isn't one who shrinks back. Your end is preservation. Because that's what God does for His people in the new covenant when he write, under, under which He writes the law on your heart. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, I never preach the saving power of temporary, unpractical, unsanctifying faith. He's saying, that's not what I preach. That's not what we preach. We don't preach the saving power of temporary faith, the saving power of unpractical faith, the saving power of unsanctifying faith. Who would, who would want to preach that? I've got great news for you. It will temporarily... Uh, make you right with God. No, that's, that's, that's not what we preach. We preach the power of lasting, practical. That is to say, it actually has an effect. Sanctifying faith. The author is, is about to describe this in, in much greater detail in, in chapter 11 to come, what faith looks like and how it, how it operates. But here, our confidence and our comfort, it comes from Christ and all that He has achieved, and God and all that He has promised, which the author of Hebrews has been going on at length about now for 10 chapters. God preserves His people. Now, we don't just sit back and, and watch this on a movie screen. We are not completely passive. That's not what it looks like. That's why He's actually telling them to do things here right? The fact that God preserves us is not incompatible with the imperatives we find here, like right just here in verses 32 through 39. Verse 32, recall, be reminded, 
Think about these things. Let the past inform your current thinking. And don't throw this away. Don't throw this away. That's, the fact that God preserves us is not incompatible with the actions that we take. He's describing, though, what the Christian life looks like, what endurance looks like, what it takes to endure in faith as those who've received God's second system of rewards, which is, I will do this and I will reward you. So the question for all of us is, where is our faith? Where is it rooted? Is your, if your faith is in yourself, then your faith will only go as far as your own strength. It will only go as far as your own, whatever you can muster up in terms of your own spirituality. If your faith is in something else or someone else, then your faith will only go as far as that object or that person. But if your faith is in the God who took on human flesh to bear the weight of your sin and offenses against him, if your faith is in him who took your curse on a bloody cross through his son, then there is good news. If that is where your faith is rooted, then, then we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The key to preserving your soul is faith in the God who preserves. Faith in the God who sent His Son so that He could take all of your curse and earn all of your rewards and share them all with you for eternity. So the author of Hebrews, he's, he's, he's telling us, he's, he's, he's pleading with us, remember the past, remember God's previous work, think about the future, remember God's promises to come, remember God's preserving power, to which you might say, how do we remember these things? What, what, how, how do we remember these things? You know, this is great, you got a nice little half sheet of paper with three things, but you lose the sheet of paper and you get another one next week. And how, how do we remember these things? Uh, I, I just can't help but direct our attention, just like last week, back to verses 22 through 25, which just gives such a great prescription for the Christian life. If you, we will commit ourselves to these things, our faith will be preserved. Draw near to God, hold fast to what you believe, and stir up one another. This is the prescription for the Christian life. This is a summary of the Christian life. That is the key to remembering. Drawing near to God in prayer, drawing near to God in His Word, drawing near to God in worship. If you don't draw near to God, you are not going to remember His promises. If you are never drawn near to God, if you rarely, if you neglect drawing near to God, you're not going to think back on your past and think about His work in your life. You're always going to be so focused on your own performance and your own experience. Cultivate habits of drawing near to God and all that that looks like in the, in the different aspects of your life. And of course, what we're doing right now is drawing near to God together. Hold fast your confession. Theology matters. What you confess to be true matters. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And you don't need a PhD in theology to endure in the Christian life, but you do need to know who God is. 
You need to have an idea of who he is. You do need to know what he has done, and you need to know what he has promised if those promises are going to mean anything to you. And that is our confession. That is what we believe. And if you're going to look to a better and lasting possession while joyfully receiving the plundering of your property, if that be God's will for you, you need to know what you confess to be true, and you need to hold fast to it. That's where your confidence is. There's no confidence, though, if you don't know the God who has promised all these things, and you don't know how you have access to Him by faith. And we stir up one another. What are we doing when we gather for worship? We are recalling, we're remembering together what God has said, what God has done, what God has promised. It's in our songs, it's in our prayer, and it's in God's Word. And then we're doing that together. This isn't virtually, right? This is in the flesh with one another. We see each other as we come in, as we, as we go. And obviously, this is taking place more than just in this you know, hour and a half, right? This, but from this hour and a half together weekly, that affects the rest of our, our week together so that we're in one another's lives recognizing evidence of grace in each other's lives. At every membership meeting, we, we talk about not only are we committed to uh, obeying and, and recognizing Jesus' uh, design for the church and church discipline when we sin and we need to be called back to Christ, but we also want to be committed to recognizing evidences of grace in each other's life because lots of times you are the last person who sees evidence of grace and, and we need to point it out in one another. So that's, that, that is, that's stirring up one another to love and good works. It's telling one another, don't forget God's promises. Don't forget God is faithful. Because we're prone. We're prone to forget. The key to enduring is remember. And if you want to remember, draw near, hold fast, and don't neglect one another. It's in these things that God sustains us. It's in these things that our faith is held secure. It's not complicated, but for whatever reason, we have to fight like crazy to do it and to keep it. The 18th century Baptist theologian John Gill writes about endurance he uses the word fortitude, but when you hear the word fortitude, he's talking about endurance. And he says, so the love of God and the senses of that love, the love of God and the senses of that love, carry us forward in fortitude, in endurance, through a persuasion of interest in God's love. God's love carries us forward. It helps us endure by our interest in his love. And in fortitude, endurance is grown in acknowledging that nothing shall separate us from the love of God and acknowledging that his perfect love casts out fear and in discovering that such love inspires with fortitude against every enemy, earthly or heavenly. So our brothers and sisters continue to need our prayers all over the world. 
But we should not consider ourselves very different from them just because the level of intensity in terms of persecution is not turned up as high for us in this moment as it is for them. What they need is the same thing that we need. We need to endure because God has promised us so much. Let's pray together. Father, help us to remember. You've told your people, going back thousands of years, to remember, and we still need to be told to remember. So, Father, help us remember that we are not saved by our own merits, but by your amazing grace. Father, help us remember that we are sinners by nature. We are entitled to nothing but judgment. And yet, that is not what characterizes us anymore, that our faith is in Christ. We are not those, because we are in Christ, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. So, Father, keep us in Christ. Preserve us in Christ. Help us remember so we can cling to our confidence and not throw it away when we're tempted to because it seems easier or because it seems like maybe another treasure is more valuable. Father, help us remember that you have promised good to us. Help us look to your word and to your your promises to secure our hope. Father, would you sustain and preserve us? We, We know that the righteous do not live on the basis of their righteous works. The righteous live by faith. And so help us embrace that and live that. Grant us faith so that as we sing now just as we're about to sing we know that this is only a taste of what we will sing one day gathered around your throne with all of your people when there is no fear anymore and no need for endurance anymore because all things have been made new we pray in jesus name amen